Hi, welcome back. This is Honor of Kings, and I am Sean Griffin. I'm here with my co-host. Ken Heiderecht. How's it going, Sean? How you, how's your week been? Hey, what's up, Ken? Uh, my week's been good, and uh, thanks for joining me again this week. We, um, man, we're, I've been having a, just a blast diving into the Book of Enoch with you. It's been, um, there's so much stuff in here to discuss, debate. Um, there's so much things, there's so many things that lead us directly back to the American canon of 66. Although we're five episodes in to this uh, Book of Enoch, um, I just feel like, I mean, this is, it's, it's making a really strong case that this particular book may, may someone should have not taken out of the canon. What would you say? I would say the chapters that we've gone over thus far, Sean, should at least be in our scriptures, at least the chapters that we've gone over. And uh, I'm going to contend that the rest of the chapters moving forward also as one complete book should be included in our, our scriptures as they were at one point before they got removed. Yeah. And that seems to be the thing a lot of people uh, forget to mention or, or maybe choose not to, to just to want to talk about, you know, those who think that the book of Enoch doesn't line up with the American Canon 66. They, they never really want to discuss this idea that um, back, you know, as of the 1500s, this book was absolutely in the canon for you know a long time, um, and it's always been in the Ethiopian Eastern Orthodox canon, as far as you know. So for over 2,000 years. So we have, um, uh, in fact, you know I, what's interesting is you know when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, 1947, the Qumran caves, Book of Enoch was found. Um, they actually used the Ethiopian, Ethiopian canon with the Book of Enoch in that to verify. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, so and it matched up nicely. It matched up perfectly. So that's why they think that 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 shows us that the scholars who reviewed the text that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls looked to the Book of Enoch that was written down in the Ethiopian canon as an authority text. So to me, that's pretty powerful, right? That means they trusted the Ethiopian canon that strongly. In order yeah, you're to not going to refer to, um, you know... Uh, a group of people and their literature and compare it to what you just found archaeologically if you don't first trust that group of people and, and the validity of their own texts, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's to me, that's huge, huge piece of evidence just to say, hey, yeah. the scholars themselves, um, they viewed this as a, as a, a text within the Ethiopian canon, which, which has, you know, many of the other books in the Bible in it too, right? The Old Testament books and all that kind of stuff. They viewed Enoch as a prophet. Um, now, why it was taken out of the American canon of 66 uh, a few hundred years ago is a great mystery, right? It's a great question. Yeah, I think, Sean, it boils down to, um, I think it boils down to people's laziness, if I can say that. They want things handed to them on a silver platter, right? And they think that their 66 books that they've received through you know whatever denomination that they subscribe to within protestantism um that that's it there can't be more there can't be less that's it and there's nothing more to really look into but if you just take a little bit of time and you ask some of these questions um you might find some answers that um can be unsettling it was unsettling to me when i when i also searched it out and uh yeah, man, I, I agree for sure. Well, here we are. It's episode six, and we're going to be digging into uh, Enoch 18 and the following chapters of that as much as we can get through in this episode. Um, so, Ken, unless you had any other commentary off the bat, um, we can just go ahead and jump in. 
No, let's let's do it. Let's just jump in. All right, sounds good. Um, do you want to start reading, or would you like me to? Uh, I can start. I got it here right now. All right, sounds good. Okay, verse one. I saw the treasuries of all the winds. I saw how. Well, I should just, I should preface Sean before we do get into this chapter that Enoch is right now we believe above the firmament of heaven. Right, he's somewhere in the heavens. Yeah, physically in in flesh, he's on the earth sleeping right near Mount Hermon, but he was taken up in a vision and and revealed a lot of these things in chapters prior and episodes that we've talked about prior. And so he's continuing on in, in his vision being shown stuff, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, the previous chapters, he had a vision. He was west of Mount Hermon, or at least his physical body was, but he was having this vision, um, which is unfolding about scenes and imagery above the firmament. Uh, chapter 15, he was up in the throne of God, right? He got to see the two houses. One house um, was fully on fire, but it was a fire that didn't consume, right? And he saw the throne of the Almighty, and he fell down in awe and fear and trembling um, in this vision type scene, right? So um, the rest of this is still happening as far as we can tell from the context. We're here three chapters later in chapter 18, and the rest of it's still happening above the firmament. And if you guys are not familiar with the biblical creation model, um, you know, the biblical creation model and, and real quickly just says that the firmament was a structure that he was made on day two that encompasses over in a dome like fashion over the land of the of the ground that we live on. And it and it actually supports waters above it and the waters above it. There's other levels of firmament, which is a structure, right? It's like the levels of a house, you know, the second story, the third story, the fourth story. And then on the top is the most high, which is why it's called, he's called the most high. Yeah. So um, it's, an, you know, all pun intended. That's where he literally gets the name the most high. He's at the top of the, of the structure. And you so, know what's fascinating, Sean, when you start taking scriptures and details and, and different um, titles and stuff like the most high, literally, it starts to make more sense of the, the surrounding context, doesn't it? Like something like the most high, you just think that's a nice sounding title, right? He's the most high, he's over everything, but literally he is. That's he's right. over everything. He's at the very, very top. He's the apex. He is. And that's what helps us understand passages like Deuteronomy 10 verse 14, where it says, you know, the, the father who's in the heavens and the highest heavens, right? Which is where God is in the highest heavens. People will say, well, what's, you know, directionally, if heaven was was not a literal direction and was just a different reality or a different dimension, how can there be a high? You know, the word high is not a word for specificity of um, of technicality, right? It's not that word's just a literal directional word used in the text in the Hebrew. So to say that he's in the highest heavens means there's a, a lower heaven than the highest one. So these are directional terms being used. These are not mystical um mystical terms used about the, you know, he's in a quantum realm. That's not what the word highest is talking about. It's not talking about height of technology or knowledge. It's talking literally directions. Okay. Up, down, left, right. And Deuteronomy 10, 14 is, is just one example in the scriptures that discusses the most high is on the highest level of the firmament. And then Genesis six, excuse me, Genesis chapter one, verse six to eight, we have the creator give us the definition of the word heaven and uh, he it's the firmament and so he made this structure called the firmament and then he gave it a name after it was completed and he named it heaven so that's just a little bit of context as we go forward and and we're going to see this translation here that we're reading is by a guy from the early 20th century his name was rh charles and he translates a lot a lot of these uh, extra biblical and apocryphal books 
he uses the word firmament and the word heaven in the same in the same text and we're going to read that here in chapter 18 he also uses the word earth very loosely very generically so when we hear this word earth used remember in the hebrew which is what this original book you know the hebrew and the aramaic aramaic is a, is a slight version of hebrew right it's an offset version of hebrew so if he's reading this text and he sees something that says land he wants to present it in the modern English, then he just uses the generic word earth, right? Meaning the soil, the earth. Whereas our mind, our minds and, and you know, and our mo modern culture, we hear the word earth and we think a ball in space. That's not what he's talking about. <laughs> okay. So that's the indoctrination of a heliocentric model in our brain, which goes against the firmament model. the heaven the firmament and the earth and what he's seen above the firmament um, in this realm where there's places where stars reside and angels are and there's different mountains and rivers and streams and things um, this is about the creation that happened above the creation that we live on here it's above the firmament and the word earth is just speaking about the land that he's looking at not specifically the land that you and I live on here um, in the on, on this level if I could put it like that that's exactly right, Sean. I agree. So yeah, I just figured we should maybe discuss that before going into this uh, chapter. Cool. So right, for, for the renewal, yep. I saw the treasuries of all the winds. I saw how he had furnished with them the whole creation and the firm foundations of the earth. And I saw the cornerstone of the earth. I saw the four winds which bear the earth and the firmament of heaven. And I saw how the winds stretch out the vaults of heaven and have their station between heaven and earth. These are the pillars of the, earth, of the heaven. I saw the winds of heaven which turn and bring the circumference of the sun and all the stars to their setting. I saw the winds on the earth carrying the clouds. I saw the paths of the angels. I saw at the end of the earth the firmament of the heaven above. And I proceeded and saw a place which burns day and night, where there are seven mountains of magnificent stones, three towards the east and three towards the south. And as for those towards the east, one was of colored stone, and one of pearl, and one of jacinth, and those towards the south of red stone. But the middle one reached to heaven like the throne of God, of alabaster, and the summit of the throne was of sapphire. And I saw a flaming fire, and beyond these mountains is a region, the end of the great earth. There the heavens were completed, and I saw a deep abyss with columns of heavenly fire, and I among and among them, I saw columns of fire fall, which were beyond measure alike towards the height and towards the depth. And beyond that abyss, I saw a place which had no firmament of the heaven above and no firmly founded earth beneath it. There was no water upon it and no birds, but it was a waste and horrible place. I saw there seven stars like great burning mountains. And to me, when I inquired regarding them, the angel said, this place is the end of the heaven and earth. This has become a prison for the stars and the host of heaven. And the stars which roll over the fire are they which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in the beginning of their rising, because they did not come forth at their appointed times. And he was wroth with them and bound them till the time when their guilt should be consummated even for 10,000 years. So now that says 10,000 years, Sean, that last um, part of the chapter there. In other versions, it just says for um, you know, a long period of time. But... Uh, yeah, this is interesting. This is interesting, man. Um, verse one, I mean, 
because I saw the treasuries of all the winds. So yeah, Enoch is seeing treasuries wind? of wind. <laughs> right. How do you hold wind? What do you how do you what do you bind wind up? It doesn't yeah. Job, uh, Job thirty eight say something about that? How do you bind the wind in your hand? Yes. Yeah. And then I saw how he had furnished them, or sorry, I, I saw how he had furnished with them the whole creation and the firm foundations of the earth. So it seems like, just based off of this chapter alone, wind plays a huge role in the creation model, holding things up. It's not just, you know, moving around on our earth plane here, um, cooling us down and, 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 you know, blowing the clouds around and stuff, but it seems like... Um, Wind plays a huge role, and I know in Jubilees chapter two it talks about how there's uh, spirits over the winds. Um, I'm trying to think where exactly that was. In uh, verse two of Jubilees chapter two, uh, it talks about the angels of sanctification and the angels of the spirit of the winds, and the angels of the spirit of the clouds and of darkness. So if you, you know you the viewer want to go to Jubilees chapter two and take a look at, at some of these things that were created on day one, some of these angels it talks about their spirits of the winds. Yeah. And we also you know, Revelation seven, it talks about the um the angels that were holding back the four winds of the earth. So um I believe it's um Job thirty or no Job twenty eight. Um it talks about just God, you know, measuring the weight of the wind. Um and so I'll, I'll make some slides and put them up here for the viewers as we talk about this and, and have the full quotations from the verses. But um, yeah, I think that there's, there's definitely some, some ideas here about winds being not just, you know, acknowledged, but controlled, used intentionally with purpose and created. And they're coming from places. And that we see that I think later in the book of Enoch, that there's actual portals of wind. I think it's yeah. in the chapters of the thirties. We're going to get that in a few episodes, but, um, yeah. Well, yeah, what, you're, what you just referred to in Revelation there, the four angels that hold the four winds at the four corners of the earth. I mean, this goes right with verse two here. Yeah. And I saw the cornerstone of the earth. I mean, if this is the earth, um, you know, this is where we struggle with locality. Is this right. land above the firmament where he saw the, the cornerstones of, or is he, you know? Well, in John's vision in Revelation, is he in that passage in chapter seven, is he looking at stuff above the firmament or stuff on the earth itself, on the land we live on. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I guess before you even asked that, I, I would have said that it's probably on our earth plane, but yeah, John's in the heavens, um, you know, in the spirit on the day of the Lord, as it, as it's, you know, the book of Revelation starts off with. So he's, you know, I think he's seeing things that are above the firmament of heaven that are contained there that are coming down. On the day of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's possible. I mean, I know that obviously John has seen a lot of stuff above the heavens in the book of Revelation. So Yeah. But it would I would think that the the angels that are holding the four winds, um, that has to play that like that isn't that, isn't that something to do with um like end time prophecy in terms of something that we experience on our earth plane. Well, I'll just read real quick from Revelation seven, and let me jump into Revelation six and make sure. Yeah, this, the end of Revelation six is the sixth seal, and it just talks about the people. You know, the the great earthquake that happens. 
Uh, the mountains are crumbling in their valleys. The people are trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. But verse 7, you know, as we know, Revelation is not in chronological order, and it kind of jumps around a little bit. And verse 7 starts off the beginning of the chapter saying, in verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So what I would say is, if the angels are about to do judgment, that doesn't happen above the firmament. That happens below. So this is very possibly is talking about these four angels at the four corners of the earth, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> um, so it's <laughs> interesting, interesting uh, descriptions there about corners holding back the four winds. Now, and of course, many times people could, I've heard some people say, Ken, that when it's talking about the earth and some of these contextual passages, it's speaking about the land of the new Jerusalem that's going to come down because we are told that's four square. So they, so they possibly are these angels standing at the boundaries of where the new Jerusalem is going to come down, which is also called a piece of earth, a piece of land, because it's real mountains and streams and rivers and soil. You know, there's going to be yeah. planting that's done there. There's going to be agriculture happening there. So it's a real piece of land that comes down with the new Jerusalem. And is it possible they're at the boundary lines of that and about to, you know, release this judgment? Um, and they're waiting for basically the, the, the seal to happen for the bond servants of God, which in my opinion would be the first resurrection. So they're waiting for that to happen, and then they're unleashing this wrath, which could be what we see in Matthew 13, 43, where it talks about the angels who are then separating, and that word in the Greek, like I've shown in the past, is the word to cordon off. The angels come down to, to cordon off the area of the New Jerusalem that's about to come down, and they're about to burn everything with fire in there. <laughs> Mass judgment is about to happen within the, the cordoned off area where the New Jerusalem is going to sit down. Because they're basically, like you would build a house, they're preparing the foundation. Right. So they're they're cleaning the land free of any obstacles and obstructions, and that's what the Battle of Armageddon is about. And they're going to get out anything that's. It's not like in the Wizard of Oz. Remember the house fell down on the wicked witch of the east, and her yep. feet are sticking out. Right. So this is not going to happen with demons and and and, um, and rebellious men on the day of the Lord. Nothing's when that New Jerusalem, the house of God, sits down. It's not going to fall down on anybody. Right? It's not going to squish anybody. They're going to completely clear that land out. And that's why it's also being leveled out with the great earthquake at the coming of the Lord, because they're literally laying a foundation for a massive house. So they're going to clean that foundation. And they do that, not just physically removing obstacles, but also burning everything with fire. They're purifying it as well. So this, this could be that same moment, Ken, in Revelation 7, and it could be talking about the earth down below. So... Yeah. But yeah. what we read in Enoch later is that these winds that we receive on the earth down below, um, does it say that they come actually from the portals from the heaven, from above? Possibly. Yeah, we're going to read Possibly. about that in later chapters. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So like we said last time, Ken, I just want to remind the viewers, um, Ken and I, because Enoch is very similar to Revelation, whereas it does not speak chronologically. You have to understand, and this is why we're breaking down these these chapters as we are. You have to understand the context of what's being spoken of in the chapters so that you can realize we're not going in chronological order in every single chapter. It, he's seen different parts of a vision, just like John does in the book of Revelation. He's different parts of a vision 
and it's not chronologically laid out. You just that's you just have to know from context because you know the writings of the prophets, what he's looking at and what he's talking about. And many times John will see the same event happening, but he's seeing it from a different perspective. And so therefore it's put in a different chapter. And it, it seems to be, if you try to take it chronologically, it will confuse you easily. But if you take it contextually, super easy to read, super easy to understand. And I would suggest because Enoch does this too, Ken and I have agreed that we're going to take a, in a, in a few weeks, we're going to have a, an episode solely dedicated to wrapping up what we've already studied and learned so far and trying to make put it in, con, in a contextual frame of reference because we've skipped around on the timeline in some of these chapters. Does that sound right, Ken? That does sound right. Yeah, that'll definitely aid in the, the viewer's understanding because it can be confusing. It really can be. Yeah. Um, so I think that'll be beneficial once we get to that. Um, but yeah, Sean, verse four here. This is interesting. I saw the winds of heaven which turn and bring the circumference of the sun and all the stars to their setting. The winds of heaven are turning these things. What do you think of that? Well, Does that work in our heliocentric model, Sean? Winds? <laughs> right. Solar radiation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that would be their only <laughs> possible answer right. to that, but that doesn't even make sense. Right. I know, right? The solar winds. Isn't that what we're told growing up, that the in space there's solar radiation winds that um, supposedly would... You know, supposed to give us like sunspots, right? That that help that mess with satellite and and signals and cell phone signals. And you know, yeah. I remember back in like the year two thousand, that was supposed to be this huge sunspot in the summer of the year two thousand, and we were supposed to have massive outages and all kinds of grid problems and electrical grid, and none of that happened. So yeah. um, it was just like built up for two weeks as a huge, you know, huge media piece, but none of it happened actually. So. It's just that now what I'm trying to say, though, is we've been told a narrative most of our life about the creation that that the book of Genesis doesn't describe, nor does any book in the Bible describe, nor does the book of Enoch describe. Um, so what we're going to read, what we're reading about presently in the book of Enoch is a model of creation that lines up with Genesis one. And that's um, not a heliocentric creation model. It's completely different. And as a result, we can see statements like verse 4, which says there's the winds of heaven, which turn and bring the circumference of the sun and all the stars to their setting. All right. So we're just told that the sun has a circumference. What's a circumference, Ken? Well, it's the circle. It's the fullness of the circle. That's right. Doesn't Isaiah 40, 22 say that uh, God sits above the circle of the earth? That he does. Yeah, he looks so, he, and he looks down upon it, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So, so if he's the, not looking. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. You're right. You're, thanks for finishing that verse for me. Um, but what I was trying to say was, if the if the land of the earth itself that we live on is a circle, and God sits above it, and we see the sun give light, you know, equally to people that live all across the land, would that also stand a reason that the sun is moving in a circle? I would say so. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just otherwise you'd have huge problems if the sun was just moving back and forth. Um, and this is where some of the scoffing comes in when people try to take the biblical creation model seriously, but they have the wrong imagery of what the Bible actually describes. So the Bible describes a circle of lamb with the firmament over it. And above that firmament in the waters of the heaven is the sun, moon, and stars that are put in their settings. And as we're reading here in verse four, this is a claim saying that there's actual winds pushing 
the sun, moon, and stars in the circuit of their heavens. Isn't it Psalm 19, uh, Ken, that talks about the circumference? Yeah. The circumference of the sun itself? Psalm 19? Oh, I thought it was the circuit of the earth. I have to check that out. Let me go there real quick because that could be a, a pretty strong parallel to, uh, to what we're reading here in Enoch, chapter 18, verse 4. And um, so look, Psalm 19, I think it's in, uh, it's in verse 6, and it's, it's talking about, well, I'll just start in verse, um, verse 4 because it's where it mentions the sun. Psalm 19, 4 says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance has to the end of the world, and in them he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there's nothing hid from its heat. All right. So if we remember Genesis one, six through eight, the word heaven is, was given to a structure called the firmament. And this says there's a circuit. All right. So if you look up the definition of the word circuit, it's a completed course that comes back to a starting point. Okay. So this is not just a line infinitely corkscrewing through infinite space, right? Yeah, yeah, that never yeah. comes back to its point. That's not a circuit. It's it heads back, back to its tabernacle. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's that's why we're seeing this line up with what we're reading in the book of Enoch as well. So looks like in verse 5, the winds also carry clouds, uh, which it, he then follows it up with, I saw the path of the angels. And then he says, I saw the end of the firmament of the heaven above which that's interesting. So I, I want to focus real quick. If I can, Ken, I just want to focus not just on, we already talked about how winds are obviously doing things above the firmament, right? In right, the course right. of affecting the creation and how we view it and observe it. But I also wanted to talk right real quick about, you know, it talks about the path of the angels and then it says at the end of the firmament of the heaven. Now this firmament of the heaven is a phrase that we also see in Genesis one. So I just want to go there real quick and it's going to be, in uh, verse 17, it says, God placed them, he's talking about the stars, in the firmament of the heaven to give light on the earth. So we have a precedent already. In fact, you know, Enoch's older than Genesis as far as, you know, when it's claimed to be written, right? The authorship of Enoch, if this is his book, um, and it's a pre-flood book, then that's, that, was, that dates back before Genesis. Am I, am I tracking that properly? You're correct, Sean. Yeah, so that would mean this term firmament of the heaven used in Enoch 5, Enoch 18:5 predates the verse the term used in Genesis 1:17. That's right. So I just want people to just because we're going to see that firmament of the heaven term, we're going to see that again in verse 12. So I just want people to um, take note of that as we're reading. These are terms we're finding already in the canon that we've grown up with, the American canon of 66. Yeah. So, so Sean, what do you think the uh, paths of the angels that he saw are? Do you think that has any correlation to Jacob and the ladder that he saw, the angels coming down on? It could be, man. It could be. I know that there is, it seems to be, and I could be wrong, but it seems to be from some of the other books in Scripture, uh, not just the the mention of Jacob and the, and the ladder going into the firmament like you're talking about, but also in some other books, it seems to be at the end of this heaven, Right, with this firmament structure he's looking at, and at the end of it, th that seems to be like the, I don't want to say the staircase, but um, the huge <laughs> elevator or something. That seems to be the... Cue the Led Zeppelin song. Right, that's right. It seems to be that 
they're not just, it's like, there's, that's the designated, you know, entry point up and down into our realm of the earth, our realm of land and waters and sea and sky to come down below the firmament that we see described in Genesis one, six through eight and leave their realm of the heaven above. Right. So it seems to be, cause I think we see that in also in the book of Jasher chapter four, where he goes to the end of the heaven where there's snow and stuff. And then that's where he, uh, it says where the angels, uh, come down if I could put it like that and go back up into the, into the heavenly, to the heavenly realm above. So, um, yeah, which so it seems like the angels have uh, a specific path and a uh, direction, direction that they have they to follow have in order to, like, to descend and ascend, right? It's not like they can just kind of maybe go through the firmament and, you know right. what I mean? Like they have to, they, they have, they're corporeal in a way too, right? They're right, not just yeah. these wispy little ghost things that can just, you know. Well, just like we see in Genesis 7-11, that they're, the firmament itself, remember it's a structure. This firmament is a structure and it has windows in it. Now, some translations in Genesis 7-11 call them floodgates because of what's about to happen in the context of the passage. These windows of heaven are open and the water comes down from above the firmament to flood the earth during the days of Noah. Um, yes, springs of the deep also burst forth. So it's flowing from, it's flooding from top and bottom during the flood story. But that, you know, so just as we see windows slash floodgates being used in the structure during the days of Noah for the flood judgment, it's it would clearly easily stand to reason that there's other other doorways if you will and that's where i would contend that enoch calls them portals in later chapters uh he doesn't use the actual english term door but he's just seeing a portal where things go back and forth in and out just like we saw in chapter 15 where he went from one house to another and he went through a portal to get from one house to another and i, I just think it's basically a reference for a doorway and and a physical literal doorway in a physical literal structure yeah, so I agree. The, I agree. Have the door they use to go down to the earth and they come back up to the, you know, to the heaven. Now here's yeah. the interesting part. What happens if you see, um, like if you're in, you know, Africa and you saw an angel fly above in the air and then take off. Now, did he just go straight up through the firmament? Is there a doorway in that direction? So we may see him fly away because he, he leaves our visual perspective and we can't see it anymore he's gone to wherever he's trying to get to, to the door to go back up to the realm above. It's an actual process, a journey, you know, which sure. makes me in, in, as far as if we're talking about directions and terms, left, right, up and down, it reminds me of what we mentioned briefly last week with Jesus addressing Legion, the demoniac and what they, they beg him not to send them back to the abyss. And instead they ask just to go into the nearby animals, the swine, the pigs. And it makes me wonder, Ken, I've always wondered this and just, just playful speculation. But it makes me wonder, Buzz, <laughs> it's such a long journey to Sheol. And these guys are, you know, these evil, unclean spirits, they're commissioned to work, you know, oppression and wickedness and sickness and disease and different things uh, to, to try to bring that to mankind, you know, because that's what they want to do. That's what we read in the last chapter. Like that was what their purpose was, the, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim pre-flood. It makes me wonder if that journey down to Sheol, down to the abyss where they pleaded Jesus not to send them, is just such a long and arduous journey. They didn't want to go all the way down there and then try to have to come back later. You know what I mean? Um, so I just think that's interesting. Just, just to really take into to what I would say take seriously these descriptions of the creation that were given in not only Genesis and all throughout the canon of 66, but also Enoch, in the sense of scope of size and magnitude of size. Because, Ken, if we look at these things, man, 
we're talking massive scale, massive scale of things, land and mountains inside of an area. And then you go to another area, there's other land and mountains. uh, And then suddenly, you know, that's just above us. That's not, and there's apparently a large sea (laughs) above us. um, That's, it's above us, above our ocean, our sea, our land, which is massive already, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's crazy, man. And not to belabor the whole um, demon aspect of what you just were talking about, but uh, I, I subscribe to the understanding that the one-tenth of the demons that were allowed to roam the earth to tempt and, and, and you know, do what they're good at doing, they, they can't go to Sheol until their appointed time they're not they're going to see their condemnation on the on the day of judgment so in my opinion i don't, I don't even think they can go to shield even though you know when they ask are you you sure are you here to you know take care of us before the appointed time or whatever um i think they're allowed to roam the earth and so they wouldn't even be able to go to shield even if he you know i don't see him saying go to shield because i think that they're they're up here for a reason and they can't transcend they can't go you know to sheol and back and whatnot where the other nine tenths of the demons are are chained up in that would be the only difference and well do you do you think that um and we'll read lists in later chapters in enoch uh, not only enoch 52 through 54 but also uh 61 62 and 63 but um do you think on the judgment on the day of the lord when yeshua returns and he's dealing with the hosts of azazel and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Do you think it's including these, the one-tenth of the demons that were not? I do. Sheol? I do, yeah. So I wait. Think all of them are going to get dealt with oh, on the day of but, the Lord. So help me. Under, okay, so did uh, maybe I misheard you. Did you just say that you were thinking that these, that on the day of the Lord, that these, the, the one-tenth that's left out to try to, you know, cause chaos among mankind, that they're going to be sent to Sheol on the day of the Lord? No, they they would they're going to be punished, right? In the in the lake of fire on the day of the Lord, in my opinion, along okay. with the rest of the nine tenths of their brothers. But I'm just saying because you had said like maybe you're you're you know, speculatively saying playfully that you know maybe that they asked to go to the swine because the journey to Sheol is just too long and arduous and all this stuff. I I don't think that they could actually go to Sheol right now. I think that they can be dispossessed and then they can go and continue to wander the earth looking for other places to inhabit. But I don't think they they actually go between Sheol and here, nor can they. I think only their brothers are placed there. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I don't know if that makes sense or not. or if, if No, I hear you. I must have misheard you. I just thought you were saying that um, they will go to Sheol on the day of the Lord, but until then they can't. But um, because the, what they're talking about, and I, and I think you explained that, I think I just misheard you. But what they're talking about when they address Jesus um, is they're just saying, hey, have you come to a, torment us before the appointed time, which as I've explained in other, other videos and, and maybe even last week that, you know, that that's them taunting Yeshua to say, are you going to do something unrighteous? Which is because that's why there's an appointed time for these judgments. Yeshua was not at that moment. It wasn't the appointed time. So for him to try to send them to a place to torment them in the lake of fire. And that's what, that's another term we're going to have to probably and really dive into and have a, and have a good explanation um, to explain to folks that are watching when we get to Enoch 22 is this idea of torment because people think that it means the Catholic version of torment, which it does not. This is not eternal burning forever. This is not, um, this is 
the idea of being tormented is that you're extinguished from existence in the lake of fire. And that's, um, that's the use of the term in the context of the judgment on the day of the Lord for, you know, the Antichrist, the beast, uh, the same person, the beast and the false prophet. And then, um, these hosts of Azazel, as we see in Enoch 54, that the chains are made for, and that they're all judged and thrown in the lake of fire to their eternal excrement and torment. And it doesn't mean that they're burning forever. It means that they're forever done. They're forever extinguished from the reality that we're in from existence. They're never going to torment again. They're never going to come back. They're out of the game forever. They're out of the story. It's done. It's over. Um, it's only a Catholic version, which is an unscriptural version of this idea of the lake of fire that teaches that quote unquote hell, which is the wrong use of even the word Sheol. So they, they've taken two terms way out of context and applied a different narrative to them about this idea of eternally burning and agony and, and torturous pain. Even in the parable in Luke 16, where Yeshua is describing the Sheol setting that we're going to see in Enoch 22. And he talks about the guy who asked for a drop of water because he's in torment from this flame. He's not the, the word in the Greek that's used in that passage in Luke, 7, Luke 16 is a word that's talking about he's in emotional pain. Okay. And he also talked about, and if we understand, since Jesus was using the, the definition of Sheol in his parable for the setting of his parable, and Lazarus was with in quote unquote Abraham's bosom, which is an enigmatic term for the good side of Sheol. And where there's a bright fountain of waters, which is represents truth and righteousness and justice, right? So that's, you know, the, the whole point of what the guy is asking for is salvation. <laughs> the drop of water yeah, exactly. that he's asking for in this parable to, to assuage the torments that he's in from the flame, the flame. And that, like I said, if you look in the Greek, it's about emotional torment, not physical torment. He knows his judgment is going to happen. Therefore, he's tormented emotionally waiting for that judgment to happen on the day of the Lord when he's, or excuse me, actually at the second resurrection, um, which would be after the thousand years when the human dead are brought up before the Lord and judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's the torment he's talking about. It's not physical pain. You just, you just don't burn forever in pain. Like that's not what we're looking at. And that's not. Yeah, that's, I agree with that. Saying. So basically it's, the dude's asking for salvation, but it's too late. I mean, if I could break down the parable in a sentence, right? One dude's expecting okay. salvation in Sheol. The other dude's expecting condemnation to be literally snuffed out of existence. And that is tormenting to his emotions because he's waiting for that day to happen. The other guy is in rest and peace and waiting for his resurrection. The guy who's judged, who's going to be judged to, to condemnation, he's asking the guy on the on, that's going to be receiving salvation if he can have some salvation. <laughs> that's all it boils down to. But because that's where yeah, yeah, Jesus yeah. explains in the parable to the guy, to the rich man who was in torment, in your lifetime, you received good things and didn't didn't follow righteousness with it. But here, Lazarus didn't receive good things, but he did follow righteousness. You know, so therefore, that's that's why. I mean, there's there's other terms of the parable, and yes, it's previous parables are talking about the use of money and all that stuff, and we we get that it's a parable, it's a teachable moment. But the setting within the parable we see in Enoch, right? That's a setting about Sheol and about these ideas here, about um, what's what's going on with with the idea of actually being in torment, which leads to condemnation in the lake of fire. Okay. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Sean, I would say that's... Sorry, sorry for the rant, on, man. Right. I just wanted to... 
No, that's good, man. I uh, I think that what the unrighteous, um, and then what we were just talking about, the parable of 16, the rich man was literally experiencing what it means to receive corruption. Like, he's, he's wasting away. He knows that he's not, he's going to perish, literally, as you said, at uh, the end of the millennial reign, um, when he's completely snuffed out. And... It's, uh, I think it talks about it in Second Baruch, um, where when the righteous are resurrected on the day of the Lord, those who are on the unpleasant side of Enoch 22's Sheol, they wither away even more. They see that those that were in the same compartment with them, waiting for their, their day to resurrect, receive their immortal bodies. And when they, when they see that, they they yeah they waste away even more and and they realize that their corruption will continue until the appointed day when they're cast into the lake of fire where they're completely extinguished and they perish is what you know what ultimately they receive they, they get perished <laughs> that's that's so, right and that's how we can yeah. understand when it uses a term like they wither away all the more it's talking about their emotional state which lines up exactly with what the greek word is used for in luke 16 about the guy who says he's in torment it's not it's not talking about their physical bodies withering away and suddenly at the resurrection there's pieces of them left that wither away even more i mean that's just again that's a catholic version of hell and sheol and the lake of fire that's incorrect according to their definitions in scripture so we do not ascribe to catholic teachings and beliefs and i um and there's been a sadly there's been a strong infiltration of that thought into protestant teachings right uh in the modern american culture in the last few hundred years so I hope anyone watching this show would be encouraged to look up these words that I'm putting on the screen for you in the slides, to look up these passages we're talking about, to study out this idea, because um, there's so much freedom in understanding what God really did describe and how he really is going to judge people. And he's not eternally keeping people in fiery torment and agony, you know, and torture. Like that is not the God we serve. So I just um, really want to drive that home, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. So, all right. What so, was it first? So, yeah, there's, I, I'm sorry to get off base a little bit, but, um, hey, that's, that's going to happen, just, man, because we're coming across concepts that yeah. are just all over the scriptures, right? So, I think people need to realize that, uh, yeah, that this is what the scriptures say, and this is what Enoch's talking about here. I do like the interesting idea that he it says in verse, uh, at the end of verse five and six here. I proceeded and saw a place which burns day and night, where there are seven mountains of magnificent stones, three towards the east and three towards the south. Um, and as for those towards the east, there's one of colored stone, one of pearl, one of jacinth, those towards the south of red stone. So it's interesting because we got four, um, we've got six mountains. There's seven mountains total, but he only describes six to begin with, right? Three of them have different colored stones and the other three are red stone. But then in verse eight, he goes into the middle mountain so that means the last seventh mountain that he has yet to describe he describes here says the middle one reached to heaven like the throne of god of alabaster and the summit of the thrones of sapphire i love how you know in these descriptions of the mountains of god and, and me personally from all the research i've done on the new jerusalem and zion and from the prophets and the american canon 66 this description here is of the seven mountains of zion that's in the, that's in the new jerusalem so this and that's why it says the middle one is the biggest one which someone who's reached up to the ferment of heaven, right? It reaches up to heaven. And the top of it is like full of sapphire, right? Because we're, 
you know, and actually we're going to read later in chapter 25, it talks about this mountain again, and it says the top of it is actually shaped like a throne, and it's also sapphire again, so it's the same description again. And this is the one that Yeshua sits on in judgment and rules from authority from Zion during the millennial reign. So we're seeing the throne of Yeshua being described to us in Enoch 18, guys. So I just yeah I no I see that too man it's pretty pretty awesome to see that. So just in and case people, yeah and, and we're gonna get to all the messianic descriptions later right aren't we Ken in like chapters 40, 46, 47, 48, 49, uh, chapters 61, 62, 63. So we get a lot of them. Enoch one hundred five. I mean we get a lot of descriptions of the Messiah, um, especially when he's ruling during the millennial reign. Um, and then I think that. This is interesting because we're getting the first mention of his throne. Yeah, yeah. He's all over the place, Sean, in in the book of Enoch. It's amazing. It really is. So um, there's more mountains, obviously. Uh, There's a region of the great earth. The heavens were completed. I saw it. So it seems to me like he comes to the end of wherever he's at, wherever these mountains are inside this firmament. He comes to the end of that. And then he sees the deep abyss outside of this because it says the heavens were completed in verse 10. Am I looking at that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm trying to stay with the, with the viewer, helping them go through the directions of these terms. And unfortunately, I don't have like complex drawings made for these descriptions. So uh, it's, it's hard for me to put on the screen something that visually represents what we're reading. So I'm trying to keep it in the context of like this is – we're looking left. We're looking right. We've gone to the end of something. Now we're starting a new vision, a new scene. We're seeing something different because we left that zone. We're going into a different zone. Um, but help me out, brother, if I'm missing some things. No, it, it's it is hard. It, it would be so awesome to have a visual aid to to you know see where we're going here. But any of you viewers out there that are good with computer programs that can help us out with this, please contact us. We'd love to. Uh, get a working model going here for people to look at. Yeah, that'd, that'd, be, be awesome. that'd be awesome to have one day, Sean. That'd be a good resource. Really would be. Um, yeah. But so it is. It can be really hard, as Sean had mentioned before, that Enoch jumps around all over the place, kind of just like Revelation does. So we're, we're trying to you know, discern where he is directionally and where he isn't um, so that we're not being confused with the different places that he's being shown by the angels here. But... Yeah, and Ken, also, you know, if you look at verses 11 through 16, um, it, it seems to say that these stars kind of didn't stay in the place they were put at creation. Am I reading that right? Yeah, Sean, it's, um, it's basically saying that Enoch was shown a deep abyss with columns of heavenly fire. And, you know, in summation, it's talking about an area where angels, or I should say stars uh, that are the host of heaven, were kept there as a prison um, because they transgressed the commandment of Yahweh in the beginning. They didn't rise according to their their appointed time. And so Yahweh punished them and he was, he was angry with them, uh, as it says in verse 16 here, and he bound them there until the time of their guilt should be consummated, which we know as, um, you know, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord type thing. So, yes, these, these hosts of heaven, these... Um, these stars that transgress their orders, they're kept in a prison that's likened to an abyss with columns of flaming fire. 
And directionally, I think it is above the firmament somewhere um, in their own prison. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So basically this would mean if I'm looking at this properly, would this mean that the night sky that we look at today is missing some stars that should be there? You're correct in saying that there is a handful of them that. It's uh, interesting. Seven, seven of them. Yeah, at least now, seven. Yeah, at least seven. And of course, with other places in Enoch, we see that these the actual stars themselves are considered, they're called luminaries. Is that right? It's like actually a class of, of angels themselves. That's right. Yeah. So. Um, and they have an angel um, policing them, I guess you could say. His name's Raguel. Raguel. He gets the cool, the cool job of making sure that these stars maintain their orders. And if not, he gets to pull up on them in his police cherubim vehicle. I'm just making that up. But <laughs> right. he, yeah, he gets to incarcerate them. Yeah, basically, and that's what we're seeing right here, right? Is that's that right. he's, I mean, this must be under his authority that these angels, these, these stars um, <clears throat> are sent to this place of, of imprisonment almost. To be bound for what looks like forever or for 10,000 years, depends on the translation. Yeah, yeah. Um, other translations say the, the period of the consummation of their crimes in the secret year. So I think the secret year is referring um, synonymously to the day of the Lord. Yeah, I could definitely see that as well, because that seems to be the day when angelic things, minus Satan himself, which is still another peculiar, peculiar little thing. But it seems like uh, most of the bad guys, uh, most of the things that transgressed in the heavenlies, not mankind, because mankind's not brought before him. Um, and the other, okay, I, I, I don't want to get too deep in parceling out the first and second uh, judgments at resurrection, the first and second resurrection, and the judgments that go with each of those. Um, we we may save that for a later a later time. But uh, but yeah, there's. I would agree with you. I think that the, the consummation of the ages would be definitely used of the term secret because remember we have Jesus responding that no one knows the day or the hour of the sun, but the Father in heaven. That's so that right. seems to be a pretty big secret. And that's the, that's the moment the Father says to the Son, go. And you know now it's the wrath of the Lamb. right? He uses his right arm, his glorious right arm, to exact wrath and vengeance on the nations yeah. on the day of the Lord. So I think you're yeah. right about that. And Sean, the... Um Verse 16 here where it says that when their guilt should be consummated, even for 10,000 years, this R.H. Charles version of this uh, passage here, the for 10,000 years is in parentheses. So That's right. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't agree with that number just in terms of what we know about, um, you know, the seven-day creation model and how that essentially equates to seven 1,000-year right. periods, um, which is consistent throughout the scriptures. Um, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. That's a good, good catch to see a parenthetical conclusion from a translator that doesn't line up with anything else we see in scripture, no matter which book we're looking at. So, um, and that could have just been an idiomatic term for a long period, you know, 10,000 years. Yeah. It's not numerically correct with what we and know it, about. And as we talked about in the first episode, we also have the Hebrew word Olam, which is often translated for the word forever. And that also means a long period of time. You know, it, it doesn't mean indefinite period of time, like as an eternal, but it means a long period of time, according to its actual definition. And we, we discussed that in episode one. Um, and we see that sometimes trip people up when they read Enoch. 
another another mention here for an upcoming episode, Enoch 22, we're going to have to parcel out that word again because that word olam or the word the term forever is translated in Enoch 22 and can confuse people sometimes as it's parceling out who is judged when and where. So that's why I kind of backed off a minute ago about explaining the first judgment at the first resurrection and then the second resurrection judgments, because we're going to, we're going to go over that in great detail and great depth when we get to Enoch 22. Yeah, that's right, man, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting here in, in verse 13 that these seven stars looked like burning mountains to Enoch. Um, that's an interesting description of what the stars looked like from his perspective when he was shown this particular part of his vision. And, um, and then in, are we talking about the size or just the shape? I mean, cause yeah, mountains have shapes, right? Yeah. Yeah. It could be the magnitude. It could be the actual physical description. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if you just likened it to burning mountains. And then in verse uh, 15, it says that these same stars, which roll over the fire are they which have transgressed the commandment so rolling over the fire sean i think we've seen that before can't remember where that was but what what in your opinion is this talking about that they rolled over the fire and transgressed this one i have no idea yeah i don't know because i mean we like i said we were just told that they look like burning mountains so right. i don't know if along their circuit they're rolling over fire to continue them to be burning as part of their, you know, created way of shedding light and, and, you know, being. Okay. So you're thinking more from like a, a chemical trend, chemical standpoint, um, as far as like how they're charged up, possibly they roll in their courses and the circuits they go through and the portals. Yeah. Yeah. The portals might be something that kind of keeps them igniting, ignited and continually on fire or something like that. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to get further into yeah. luminary talk and and shows to come, which hopefully will expound on maybe this idea a little further. But yeah, it's an interesting way of describing, you know, these stars that have to roll over fire. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And the way it's worded, it doesn't seem to say that it's just these particular stars, but it's um, stars in general. Yeah. Stars in general. Yeah. So yeah. that's interesting. It's a good yeah. thing to note. We'll have to keep keep that in the back of our minds for later chapters discussing luminaries. That's right. Right on, man. You want to read the next chapter there, or is there yeah. anything else you wanted to delve into in this? Yeah, I can jump into 19 real quick. Sure. Okay. So uh, Enoch chapter 19, verse 1 says, And Uriel said to me, Here shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women, and their spirits assuming many different forms are defiling mankind, and shall lead them astray into sacrificing to demons as gods. Here shall they stand till the day of the great judgment in which they shall be judged till they are made an end of. And the women also of the angels who went astray shall become sirens. And I, Enoch, alone saw the vision and the end of all things, and no man shall see as I have seen. So it's a short chapter. It's short, but it's, man, is it ever controversial, isn't it? It's a controversial okay. chapter. Yeah. Um, for Well, my... First thing that steps out to me that I think is interesting is it talks about the angels, their spirits assuming different forms. Uh, we have this passage in Jude, um, verse I think it's verse six. I'm going to go there real quick. I'll, put, I'll also put this up on the screen for for people to read along. But in the book of Jude in the New Testament, in uh, verse six, where it talks about and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. Um, now that's uh, 
that's in in this particular translation. But what's interesting is that the other translations, if I'm not mistaken, talk about how they left, um, did not keep their position. They've been in a proper dwelling. Um, I'm trying to remember. Maybe it's in the Greek. I, I saw someone do a breakdown one time, basically talking about how the angels left their habitation. And I'm waiting for my internet to to load the page fully so I can go into the to the text analysis. But um, well, it's interesting, Sean, because you know when I see this, um, the, the angels who have connected themselves with women and their spirits assuming many different forms. I mean, that's that isn't a characteristic only given to those angels who connected themselves with women this is a watcher class characteristic right where they can assume different forms right and so when i think about this i think about in hebrews where it talks about you know we could be entertaining angels right because they they've assumed themselves as men throughout the scriptures and unbeknownst to the characters that you know come into contact with these these men and even the scriptures call them men in many instances right they don't say this is an angel that that is just assumed a form of a man that just bang out it says and and the men showed up or a man is is you know coming to talk or whatever it, it doesn't give us that bit of information or that context that you know the book of enoch tells us that they can assume the likeness of men and we wouldn't even know it they're that convincingly you know look like men so it's just something to consider especially when we when we think about you know abraham's interaction with three men that showed up with him um and elsewhere in the scriptures right yeah absolutely and like i said um um there is that that mention in the apocalypse of baruch talks about the resurrection will be like the angels and being able to um change into any desire any form we desire um and so i think that that's yeah interesting Uh, i don't don't want to go too far with it because we're going to get to the apocalypse of baruch at a later time we will, um, but even even here, Sean, assuming many different forms, that's well, right. it goes beyond just turning into men, right? I mean, in the book of Jasher, which is an interesting book to look at, um, it's controversial, obviously, but uh, Satan, who you know we're speculating might be Azazel, um, was able to turn himself into a a pool of water, a river. So they can, they can, apparently they can change into things that go beyond just like, you know, a man's appearance type thing. They can change into, into elements sure. in a way. And you know, you know, they're already a fire, right? They're a fire. So that's right. Yeah. And we have, you know, this idea, um, we have similarities of this idea with countless millions of testimony from people that have seen demonic possession or have seen, um, you know, very demonstrable events of spiritual wickedness in our modern life where they'll talk about things changing shape, people's faces changing shape, uh, people that are possessed, you know. Um, This is where modern media has tried to glamorize or glorify this idea through horror movies. Um, But the the sad reality, the, the terrifying reality of this idea is that you see this kind of stuff um, in small doses, people talking about experiencing this stuff when they have interactions with demonic activities that are not productive, that are not good, right? And they're terrified by it because they can see, it's almost like they can see matter changing on demand, you know? And that, and I think, in, now that's from a spiritual sense, 
right? Right. Now let's look at modern science. Modern science claims that the the new physics of microbiology and nanotechnology claims that they can they're they're creating programmable matter so that they can create stuff that'll change forms and shapes whenever it wants because on on a molecular, small molecular level they're able to control it and move it around um so essentially this is manipulation of the creation in general but at a microscopic level do the angels have the power to do this it seems to say they do yeah so that's all I'm trying to get at is just try a real world practical example, both from testimony of the demonic interactions, but also in physical sciences. We can see that this on a physical level, you know, outside of a kind of a spiritual realm, we can see the same concepts parroted. Um, and I think that that's fascinating that we have here a direct mention that angels can assume many different forms. Yeah, exactly. So, Sean, just uh, for our viewers' sake, and even just for our own sake here, verse one, it, it, where um, where Uriel is showing Enoch this, this is the same place as as the uh, the seven stars that are bound in that abyss, right? Yeah, exactly. So, the previous context, we you know we went to this outside of the this one enclosed area that was called, you know, he reached the end of that firmament of heaven, went to a different place where there was an abyss, where there was no clear firmament above or, or bottom below a place of fire and burning mountains and abyss, you know, a, a not good place. And then here we have a conversation pick up while he's there. And it's, it's Uriel saying, you know, here at this place you're looking at shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women. So what I'm seeing, Ken, to me is this is Tophet. This is what the Old Testament in Isaiah 30 refers to as Tophet. Yeah, Isaiah 30, 33, right? Yep. And then what we see later in the New Testament referred to as Gehenna. It's the lake of fire. It's the yeah. place of burning. And I so, agree. Yeah. yeah, I agree, man. And this is, I know we're going to have to really discuss this in, in uh, probably in our next episode when we get to Enoch 22, right? Yeah. Where the translators have had their way with certain texts and have, have created a lot of confusion when it comes to you know, Hades and Sheol and hell and kind of compiles them all into one place when really it's not. Um, and Topheth being, you know, the Old Testament version of Gehenna, which is the, the, uh, the New Testament or the Greek version, right, of the Valley of Hinnom. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, which isn't, you know, which isn't Sheol or, or Hades. It's not the place of the, you know, the abode of the dead where souls go when they die. It's a place where people are brought from Sheol and dropped into the lake exactly. of fire. Exactly. And, and this is the, actually this place is uh, overseen. If you could, if I could say it like this um, by um, Yeshua, by the, the reigning King of Israel of the new Jerusalem, which will, which is Yeshua during the millennial reign. Right. Cause it comes up. Doesn't it come up into the middle of the land or something like that? Yeah. It, it, it seems to be that this creation is, is, um, is augmented, if I could say it like that. What were these? Some of these descriptions that we're seeing, as as Enoch saw it pre-flood, uh, by the time that it gets to the the descension of the New Jerusalem and the Day of the Lord, that they, things have been kind of rearranged in a sense, if you will, because the um, that's you know we know that the garden itself is enlarged to accommodate uh, everyone in the first resurrection. We get that mentioned in Isaiah forty nine, and so um, this is. This is another just indicator. If he's seeing components of things that are going to be used on the day of the Lord in judgment, places he's being shown 
just like he just saw the throne of Yeshua that where Yeshua is going to sit in the, you know, in Enoch's future reality, right? Which really close to our future reality now, which is why the book of Enoch is for that latter generation about to go through the great tribulation. Um, So I think that that's fascinating that we have, you know, we're getting these glimpses of things we see in a millennial reign setting. But remember what Yeshua said, I go to prepare a place for you. Okay. I don't think that he's going just to, to fully create because the garden was created from the foundation of the world. Um, it says that this place of burning has in Isaiah 30, um, it says it's long been prepared for the Antichrist. And I'll just read that right here real quick. Um, and as, uh, Enoch 19, as we're reading, it's already been prepared and and ordained for the rebellious angels. So let me just read this real quick in Isaiah 30 so people can understand where we're pulling from. Um, and it says in... Um, I'll just start with verse... Um, Verse 31, and it says, For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod, and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles, brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Tophet has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So, so, I, Sean, I just think which that king, which king are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah, we're we're talking about Yeshua. This is the King of Israel. This yeah. is gonna be the King, Kings, Lord of Lords. This is our Savior. This is our Redeemer. This is our strong and high tower. This is our this is our Lord and uh, our perfect agent and representative of the Almighty, His Son Yeshua of Nazareth. So I think that um, it's fascinating here because we're getting huge mentions of you know, people ever people scoff sometimes, thinking, "Well, oh, the angels are put away and." Uh, they're let back out and all this stuff, and I, I don't see that. All I see is the angels are put away until the day of consummation, and on the day of consummation, they're thrown into Tophet. They're thrown into the lake of fire. That's right, yeah. And then just the surrounding context of what you just read there in Isaiah 30, that's referring to Nimrod, right, the Assyrian, who will be beaten down. That's right, yeah. And then we get that in the next chapter as well, right at the end there, where it talks about the Assyrian will fall by the sword. Because in another extra-biblical book, we're, t- we're told that Yeshua takes this Assyrian, Nimrod, up to his mountain and convicts him and then lays him open thigh to neck, right? As we, we know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, Habakkuk 3.14 talks about the Assyrian um, who's, who's defeated by Yeshua. And then, you know, we've got, uh, what, what other book is it? Um, is it? Uh, I think it's second, is it second Baruch. Is it second Baruch that talks about him being actually brought to to stand before Yeshua in second Baruch thirty, I believe. Yeah, and that's where we had the, um, you know, kind of like the the ir- irony, if you will, of you know the Antichrist uh, and his original purpose, which is the purpose of Nimrod, which was in Genesis eleven to ascend through the firmament to get to heaven to kill God to reign, um, as as God does on this throne. But the only time he's ever going to get close and he's going to see this throne is the day of his judgment. That's and then right. thrown into the lake of fire. So that's some, you know, some some irony for you. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. it's Second Baruch thirty. Just I apologize for you guys out there. It's the fortieth chapter of Second Baruch. Yeah. The thirtieth chapter is really interesting because it talks about Yeshua coming back, returning in glory, which implies a second time for him to come back. <laughs> right. We're gonna get there. Sorry, Sean. I know. It's okay, man. It's okay. Yeah. It, it, it's just for the viewers out there, in case they're they're not familiar, Second Baruch is also called the Apocalypse of Baruch. 
That's right. So um, if you're trying to research it and read it before we get to it on this show, but we will get to it on the show because like, like Ken just talked about, there's wonderful messianic prophecies in there. And to me, that's of, of probably of all the books of that were removed from the Bible, you know, the book of Enoch and the book of second Baruch, uh, Baruch, the apocalypse of Baruch are the most suspicious of the ones to remove from the Bible because they describe the enemy and the coming Messiah in so much detail. So if you're trying to confuse the body of believers to you know not be able to understand sound doctrine, not be able to stand, understand scripture that they're reading, you take those two books out and you've, you've gone a long way to confusing people. Yeah, that's so, right, Sean. I agree. And if, if this book, I mean, even though our 66 canonized scriptures do talk about, you know, Yeshua in a way where he's going to be coming, right? You would want to remove a book like Second Baruch. And then as a result of that, we have anti-missionaries, right? Who's saying, where is he in the, where is he in the scriptures? Where is any talk of him coming in the flesh and this and that? Like, well, Second Baruch actually refers to that. And very clearly with, with no misunderstanding. Yeah, it's yeah. Very, very blatant. So now, whereas in the past, before I ever read Second Baruch, I had to kind of parcel it out from very, very unique passages in the Psalms and in you know other places in Isaiah. Obviously, Isaiah 53 is a big one. And you line up the context of Isaiah 53 as a suffering servant who dies with all the context of all the prophecy of the coming on the day of the Lord, and if you understand those big concepts, right, of Yeshua dying because he's bearing the sins of the people, which is a term for the priesthood, and then him coming on the day of the Lord to reign in power, which fulfills Psalm 110, 1 through 4, uh, both in the authority of kingship and in the order of Melchizedek as a priest, it takes, it takes a lot of contextual understanding between what the prophets are talking about with those two different events, combining them with the prophecies surrounding those events to understand the first and the second coming. But then you've got books like Second Baruch that just blatantly tell you in like one or two sentences. That's right. <laughs> it make it so easy, right? And then you don't have to do what I was having to do for years, which was to line up like Psalm 1610, where David says, I know you won't abandon my souls to Sheol, and you won't let your Holy One see decay. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. actually mention that as, as a yeah. reference in Acts chapter 2 as well. Yeah, yeah and I'm, a, I'm the guy over here having to explain to people that, you know, the Holy One is Yeshua, and the you know God doesn't die; the Messiah does. That's what's prophesied. So, and of course, that if he's not going to decay, that means he's dead. But he's not dead long enough. He's going to be resurrected. And so, I'm having to like from that little statement piece together these theological concepts that would take you know a month to explain to people from all the prophets. Yeah. And then you got books like Baruch that come along and just do it in one sentence. And I'm yeah. over here just like, oh, why didn't I have this information available to me earlier? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's um. Yeah, I'm appreciative of books like Baruch. And, and like I said, it's highly suspicious that a book like that would have been removed from the canon. Yeah, amen. Amen, brother. And uh, just getting back here to our chapter um, where it says that these spirits who connected themselves with women um, shall lead men astray into sacrificing to demons as gods. Um, so that's referring to, obviously... A post-flood reality, correct? Or do you think that that's they were leading them astray to, to be sacrificing to demons before the flood? But that wouldn't really make sense because demons are, you know, wandering spirits of the dead Nephilim giants, correct? I, I think the word "shall" is maybe misleading to us to think of a future event, but it's just recapping what we've already read about 
the you know they took wives they had the offspring and then it tells us that their offspring become the demons on the earth that men make idols of and oppress and and you know torment men and cause sickness and disease because we read that what was it um last chapter verse was it chapter 17 or 16 so we i mean we read that in last episode that that is where we get the word demons that's where we get this idea of unclean spirits is that um they are the disembodied souls of the nephilim and so that means even when they're in the body they're still being worshipped as gods before the flood which is yeah. why the, the same practice picks up post flood and the demons and the unclean spirits always set themselves up as as an idol as a physical representation of their quote-unquote non-corporeal self so that the people can worship them in idolatry yeah did i did i make any of that clear oh yeah no that's clear man so that's that's where i get out of that i don't i'm not sure this is talking about the angels are still around post flood i mean obviously we know that one angel still around azazel but he didn't defile himself with the women um as far as we can tell so Sorry. therefore these ones that are being judged for this specific act of defying themselves with women their offspring the nephilim are leading mankind astray into sacrificing to them and worshiping them in idolatry yeah okay um yeah until the great day in which they shall be judged till they are made an end of man i can't wait for that day sean <laughs> right and that's to me personally that's why um i i don't i don't know like all the nephilim all the offspring of the, both the, the angels that took wives and all their offspring um and then any anything that became nephilim post-flood and got to the point of qualifying themselves as a corrupted, unclean spirit. And that was a kind of a, a difficult conversation we had last week where we were trying to parcel out with great detail the difference between a, someone that can manipulate themselves to grow bigger as a giant and then someone that was literally an unclean spirit and the difference there between, okay? Because yeah. we sometimes get the same word Nephilim used in both instances. Um, so I, I was trying last week to very diligently parcel that out for people to understand i hope i did a good job but i i mean i listened to the episode again and and i could probably spend another 20 minutes trying to help people understand it but the idea that what i'm seeing here in chapter 19 is that both the angels who took wives um and their offspring are going to be thrown into the lake of fire at the return of yeshua yeah i agree i think which it's is, which is amazing because i'm guessing we may get to see that <laughs> mankind resurrected mankind uh in the within the new jerusalem may get to see that and ken if we remember the descriptions of the new jerusalem which is also called zion in the old testament which is this land area and these mountains and this 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 whole concept that enoch's been sh uh has been shown in these past few chapters remember what enoch uh revelation 21 calls the new jerusalem that its walls are clear yeah so People can see into this place. They just have to, you know, and that's for a different conversation, different chapters. We can go into Ezekiel and a whole bunch of different places, but the survivors of the day of the Lord who are outside the city that start encamping around the city because they come to it for provisions, for food, water, shelter, medicine from the trees that grow along the river of life, they can't go inside the city unless they're doing Torah. And unless they, just like we have the example given to us in, in the law in Exodus through Deuteronomy, about people that could get close to the presence of God, and they only did that through sanctifying and purifying themselves through these acts of the Torah. 
Um, and of course, also their heart had to be right. So there's there's some there's qualifiers, but you can get into the outskirts of the city. From what I understand, they just can't get to the inner depths of the city. Long story short, they can see through the walls of the city. Is it possible since this mountain is going to be the biggest mountain in the entire area within the New Jerusalem, uh, uh, the top of the mountain made of sapphire, that's the throne of Yeshua. Is it possible that the survivors of the day of the Lord are going to get to witness these rebellious angels and all their demon offspring who've led mankind astray and caused all this chaos and disease and death, that they're going to get to watch them be thrown in the lake of fire and judged by the righteous judge, Yeshua. Is that possible? I would say it's highly possible, John. And I think Paul mentioned something in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe it is, where it says that, you know, do you not know that you will judge angels? Well, I think not only will we see their judgment, we may actually take part in the judging process. It's wild man it's wild but what a what a man imagine that testimony that you're you know you survived the day of the lord and all the craziness that happened on the on the earth at that time and you travel with your family and who's left of your your friends and family <laughs> you travel with them um to the new jerusalem this massive 1500 mile tall 1500 mile squared city come down through the firmament and you can now see it connected to the firmament above um, because of the way it's designed and how, how scriptures tell us. And <laughs> you, you see inside the angels moving around because you can see through the walls. You see inside us, the resurrected saints in our, you know, in our white clothing that we get the resurrection moving around. And as we are illumined by God, as Revelation 22, and 22 says, so we're kind of glowing in a sense like Moses did when he came down from the mountain. And you see... Um, Yeshua on the throne, right? Because every eye will see him. And so because you can look actually through the walls of this amazing city and what a testimony as far yeah. as like, oh, I want to aspire to be in there, you know? So therefore yeah. they start learning Torah. They start learning the instructions of God for yeah. righteous living. No, I, I, I agree, man. It's, it's crazy how it's all yeah. going to be set up. And I think that's, that is the purpose for why, you know, the mountains are laid low and the valleys are risen up and filled up, you know, to make a straight path to Yahweh's, you know, his kingdom so that all, all eyes can see from whatever corner on the earth you are, you can see it. It's amazing. And then imagine even, even those who scoff and they say, or maybe scoff is the wrong word. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're just severely misunderstanding the scriptures. But those who say that demons are not actual, real, evil, unclean spirits because they reject the book of Enoch and they claim that demons are just simply sickness and disease. And that was that was the New Testament way of, of personifying sickness and disease was to call it an actual demon. But, you know, this um, this narrative that some people have chosen to believe because they reject Enoch so strongly, um, they claim that, you know, demons aren't real, that it's just, a, you know, that's just a name, a concept given to sickness and disease. Well, on this day that we just mentioned, where the offspring, the Nephilim, that people were affected by throughout history are thrown in the lake of fire by the angels and under the authority of Yeshua, they're going to, in my opinion, they're going to be able to see it. There'll be no question anymore. There'll be yeah. no question about who the enemy is and how they're working and where they come from and what this is all about. Again, this is just another strong reason why you would want to take the book of Enoch out of the canon because it's, 
it tells us who the enemy is. Yeah, it we keeps the pharmaceutical know. companies going strong, Sean. We'll say that again. I said it keeps the pharmaceutical companies going strong, right? When we oh, yeah. classify everything out there under an umbrella of mental health, right? And I'm not, I'm not disputing that there isn't, you know, mental health issues and, and illnesses and stuff like that. But I'm just saying, like, yeah, I think yeah. that the, the big pharma companies know what they're really, you know, what's really out there in this world. But I mean, that could be another discussion, maybe. But. Yeah, I mean, there's to me, there's no coincidence that it directly tells us these offspring, these disembodied spirits of the Nephilim pre-flood are now the ones post-flood that work disease on the earth, on mankind. No. And therefore, when Yeshua returns and brings down the New Jerusalem, and within it is the river of life flowing out from under his throne, and the trees that grow along the river, and the leaves of those trees along the river of life are used for the healing of the nations, so that therefore there's no more disease going out there. I mean, I mean, there still might be disease, but now there's no more incurable diseases, right? That's so right. you're going to have... You know, Yeshua is going to upstage all the pharmaceutical companies and all their hoaxing, all their ridiculous, you know, side effects that cause more problems than the initial ailment, all that yeah. nonsense that we see on nightly commercials. So I mean, all that's going to be done away with is the perfect, you know, the ultimate healthcare will be here. It's our, right. it's our Savior and our Lord. And it'll be free. It's beautiful. That's right. And it's free. So, you know, <laughs> in fact, this makes me, um, it reminds me of a, a little special video I want to make about breaking down in scripture uh, the claims of socialists and communists compared to what scripture actually teaches, you know, um, because it's, they, they claim that scripture teaches a version of socialism and that Jesus would have been a socialist leader. And I'm like, ah, no, no, you no. there's, there's so much in there that would dispel socialism and communism. In my opinion is a political doctrine of demons. Like that's just does nothing but destroys humanity and, and community yeah i agree it goes against so many scriptural principles yeah i mean it's all laid out in the torah right yeah exactly there's yeah, yeah and there's individual responsibility required and people got to work and i mean there's so many ways to attack it but that's one of the big claims of socialism and communism is you get this idea of free health care right yeah yeah. So, yeah we see that happen in the new jerusalem you do get free health care you do get free fruit and water from the city but there's still things required of you right it's not exactly. just a handout Exactly. So, Sean, before we move on yeah. here, um, verse 2 says that the women also of the angels who went astray shall become sirens. Now, that's interesting, right? That they would become sirens? What, what are these sirens talking about? Yeah, this, this is a fun passage because, um, you know, the word sirens, from, from what most people think of when they hear that specific word, is they think of, you know, like a mermaid, right? The Greek mythology. The, the women who would sing at the sea and attract sailors to the ship to then kill them and eat them. <laughs> so they're like a vicious piranha type mermaid, uh, which, you know, would be considered a demonic style entity. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to be that their judgment is that the women that took part in copulating with the angels, that they get a physical judgment as well, just as the angels received a physical judgment that they should no longer be able to go back to the physical place of their original dwelling, their abode and their habitation, and they're sent to Tartarus, uh, the women themselves become sirens. Now, here's the question. When I looked this up in the Greek, is this word siren that is used? Because, and the reason I had to say the Greek is because, you know, if the book of Enoch was found in a version of Hebrew, which is called Aramaic, 
and that's been translated over. And this was the best use of the translated word that was found. And was and we use this term sirens, or at least this is what R.H. Charles, who translated the Aramaic to sirens. Um, if we look back in the Septuagint, which was a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, we see this same word that is used to translate to sirens here is being used in different types of ways throughout the Old Testament that we have in the modern American canon of 66. So that's why I said at the beginning, um, for us in our modern day, to take this word siren, which has a very unique interpretation of it according to Greek mythology, right? Which is this idea of a, 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 a cannibalistic mermaid woman, right? That attracts sailors to him and then eats them. I don't know how that works, right? So, uh, because even the mythological story itself, there's some things that seem kind of strange, right? Because if you're, if you're a mermaid, let's just go through the motions just for the fun, just real quick. If you're a mermaid and you're trying, <laughs> if you're somehow in the water attracting men just because you look good from the top half, but your bottom half is a fish, I'm not sure a lot of men, I mean, they may be fascinated with you. And apparently, I guess it was their singing that drew them over. And then yeah. once they got close, then they attacked them somehow. I don't know how that works. I've, I've heard that they they sang yeah. the sailors into shipwreck, essentially. Yeah. It made yeah. them come upon the rocks, and, and that's how they got them to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the point is, though, if it, that's the, that's the you know, we don't pull our scripture. We don't pull our truth from Greek mythology. So when we see this word siren, I don't equate that to the description we're given from, from Greek mythology, which does not, is not the word of God, right? Is not, you know, the, to hold up to the testimony of the prophets, does not encourage commandment, uh, obedience to the commandments of God, does not talk about the Son of Man pre, during, or post return at the day of the Lord. So none of the qualifiers are there for me to take any description of a, of a word that I might be seeing used in the scripture to then suddenly carry that over to the definition of that word from a from a culture and a story or a society that does not observe the word of god or believe in the word of god so that's a false equivalence right off the bat so when i use the word siren just because in our culture we may have only ever heard that term used in greek mythology that doesn't mean i'm defining the word siren by greek mythology that would be very poor hermeneutics that would be very poor biblical scholarship to be honest with you so i'm going to immediately throw out any pictures that I may have from Greek mythology about the def what how they defined a siren, and I want to look at any use of that word we see throughout the rest of Scripture. So, if we just for example, the six different times this word is used in the rest of Scripture, I can look three of those times in the book of Isaiah, and it's going to be in Isaiah 13, thir uh, verse 21, it's also in Isaiah 34, and I believe it's uh, verse 13, and then also Isaiah 43, verse 20. And so if we look at those particular verses, like we just look at verse 13 real quick, um, and it's a, uh, Isaiah 13, 21. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm in, let me see real quick. Let me pull it up. Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have any, any correlation in its context to being anything to do with the sea or a creature in the sea or any kind of hybrid version of a half fish, half woman in the sea. Okay. So it, it talks about in, uh, but desert creatures will lie down there and their houses will be full of owls. 
Ostriches, ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Now, this is just this particular translation. Isn't that right, Ken? Because we have the yes. word ostrich is replaced for the word siren in this verse, and the word shaggy goat is replaced for the word satyr. Yeah. Isn't that right? And what's a satyr? Satyr is another mythological creature that's half man, half, half goat. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Right? Half fun. This is actually the classical depiction of Azazel. Aziz the Caesar, a satyr. Yeah. Pan, or right? Pan. Yeah. right, Pan. Yeah, that was a classical depiction as well. Um, and of course, we even have uh, allusions to this um, in scripture where it, and, or, you know, was it Ephraim the Hittite was a uh, fawn like? He's described yeah. him as fawn like. And then we've even got, um, you know, supposedly in some of the ancient records, I, I have to go back, I believe it was Josephus, but he talked about the Hittites being full of satyrs. So, <laughs> you know, here's the thing, guys the Nephilim practices were happening after the flood and part of those Nephilim practices was not only genetic manipulation to create bigger men called giants but was also to blend the species together to create these hybrid versions of half beast half man so this is in my opinion you know if I were to immediately transpose this conversation into our modern narrative with modern science and politics this is where the transhumanism species debate is going is because they're trying to get us back to these day to this uh, practices of occultism, which blends the species together uh, as much as they can through genetic splicing to create hybrid creatures. So, but that's a little bit of an aside. The use of this word that we see translated into siren, it's original from the Hebrew to the Greek by the scholars who created the Septuagint Bible in, in approximately 300 BC. We see this same word in Isaiah also. So this, in the days of, this, of the creation of the Septuagint, we also already had the, the scroll of Isaiah written. Okay, so they knew what this word was about. They knew what this word meant. And all we're doing is we're taking them, or at least all, I should say those who reject Enoch, all they're doing is they're taking this one specific word that a modern translator in the 20th century, R.H. Charles, decided to use this word he was looking at in the Hebrew Aramaic and he brought it over and called it a siren. Whereas that same word is translated in other places to be just animals, like an owl or an ostrich or a creature or a monster even in some translations. So the scholars, they are in disagreement themselves about how they're wanting to translate this. And I think that that's interesting. Um, and that's just, a, you know, like I said, those three places in Isaiah I mentioned are just a couple, couple of mentions of it. Um, so the point being, when we see this in, in Enoch 19, was it chapter 18 or 19? Uh, I believe it was 19. Yeah, in Enoch 19, verse 2. You know, I, I would discourage people from, if you see a word that, just because the only time you ever heard that word was from, you know, a bad, a bad movie or, you know, a cartoon somewhere growing up or uh, just because they're going off Greek myths and fables about stories that are not scripture, I would not let that you be the defining thought in your head. Um, so that's why I always want to refer back to the scriptures. And we do see this word used in the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely, man. I don't think it, there's a stretch at all involved with um, the very real reality that creatures that were chimeric in nature existed even in the days of, um, you know, the times when they had to go into Canaan, when Israel was commanded to go into Canaan, right? And Yahweh had said to root out creatures and beasts from certain tribes and other ones they could keep. So there has to be a plausible reason behind him instructing them to do that, right? And as we know, 
a lot of times it had to do with the fact that they were blending things and creating abominations. And so, yeah. And that's, that's why last chapter I did spend some time trying to parcel out this idea of the different, the different circumstances that we see judgment happening in the post flood uh, land of Canaan, that God uses the Israelites to come in and kind of surgically strike some, some cities and some provinces and some areas with different types of clans. Some were driven out naturally, others were driven out by force, some were conquered and then literally parceled out according to how tall they were. Some were, you know, only the men were killed, everyone else was left alive. And then in other severe cities and other severe circumstances, man, woman, child, and even all the animals and livestock and everything in the city buildings, everything was burned to the ground and killed. So there's, we're seeing different, you know, God is just, and that is our, our theological premise for everything, right? God is just. So he is not going to unfairly judge someone according to something that hasn't, you know, that hasn't, that doesn't deserve it. So he's, we're seeing a huge example all throughout Deuteronomy, all throughout the book of Joshua, and even into the days of David in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. We see all these wars and that are going on in the land of Canaan between the Israelites and the surrounding nations, where there is different, different judgments being used for different clans according to their corruption according to their sin according to you know how god instructed the israelites to handle them and that gives us huge indication because the punishment does fit the crime with yahweh you yeah. know he he's judging them accordingly yeah and them, i mean i'm sorry to i'm sorry to get too far from that ken i just want to say many of them in those land of canaan were practicing these techniques we see uh, not only in all types of hieroglyphics and carvings throughout the thing but it's it's told to us in other extra biblical books that they were blending species this was a practice of the nephilim this yeah, man. If we want to even look at the book of Jasher, which is referred to by, you know, the writer of Joshua and Second Chronicles, is this not recorded in the book of Jasher? When you look at the book of Jasher, it hands down describes these animal hybrid, um, animal human hybrid creations. And you can't go, you can't get away from it. These things existed according to, you know, the account of Jasher. But even today, man, like what's going on in our world today? We got interesting chimeric things happening in labs, right? I mean, it's coming through in mainstream a lot more, right? Where they're they're talking about blending human species with animal right. species, and that. I believe that as we continue to tamper and go further, further in that direction, that you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, right. Yeah, we're gonna have judgment come because of our own um, abominable creations in this day and age so it's not it's just we can do it today and they definitely were able to do it back in, in days when human beings were smarter and, <laughs> right. and you know what i mean yeah they definitely had some knowledge and you know if, if i can real quick i'm just going to read the passage you're referring to in jasher is chapter 4 verse 18 it says and their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice and the sons of men in those days took from the cattle of the earth, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and taught the mixture of animals of one species with another, in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw the whole earth, and it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth, all men and all animals. It's, it's right there. I mean, it's just saying this is a huge claim. And this is what I was saying earlier. Like, we don't take information from pagan sources like the occultic sources like ancient Greece or ancient Egypt or the ancient Sumerians or the ancient Akkadians 
we don't take their hieroglyphs and make scripture out of it. Yeah. We take things that are given to us in scripture, and if we see a parallel in ancient occultic cultures, then that just only helps us venerate scripture all the more. So in an idea here where we see Nephilim practices of they were genetically corrupting things, which is why Noah is called Tamim. It's a genetic word used for righteousness. In Genesis 6-8, Noah was the only one left that was considered perfect in his generations. Well, the Hebrew there says he's Tamim. That is a term used all throughout the Old Testament when it talks about the sacrifice, the lamb, that was to be without spot or blemish. It's a medical term for a specific genetic purity. So all flesh was corrupted, as Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 6-11 and 13 tell us. This is exactly what Jasher 4.18 is parroting as well. Leading yeah, and even, Sean, even further on in, in a latter chapter, um, 36, I'll just read a couple of verses here. It's really interesting um, where they come across some of these creatures, right? Yeah. It says, um, and while he was feeding his father's asses, he led them to the wilderness at different times to feed them. And there was a day that he brought them to one of the deserts on the seashore opposite the wilderness of the people. And while he was feeding them, behold, a very heavy storm came from the other side of the sea and rested upon the asses that were feeding there, and they all stood still. And afterward, about 120 great and terrible animals came out from the wilderness at the other side of the sea, and they all came to the place where the asses were, and they placed themselves there. And those animals from their middle downward were in the shape of the children of men, and from the middle upward, some had the likeness of bears and some the likeness of the kifas, I'm not sure what that is, but tails behind them, from between their shoulders reaching down to the earth like the tails of the Dutchifath, I'm not sure what that is either. And these animals came and mounted and rode upon their asses and led them away, and they went away into this day. And one of those animals approached Anna and smote him with his tail and then fled from that place. This is this is during the days of Jacob and his sons, right? So yeah. depending on where the viewer, you know, sits in terms of the validity of Jasher, which I know is a contentious book. I mean, hands down, this is talking about chimeric animal-human hybrids, right? 120 of them, and they ride upon asses. <laughs> so it's... And here's the thing that this is not, this is not mythology, uh, because this is being done in labs today. Now, not, maybe not to the severity that we're seeing with a passage that was just read, but in 2012 alone, the United Kingdom publicly declared, so that doesn't mean what they've done in secret, but they've publicly declared that they created 150 different chimeras in laboratories. That's a mixture of human genomes with animal genomes. And they even created cows that run purely on human blood. So, I mean, that's, that's crazy. And they use it for blood bank, blood bank harvesting. But there's also been other experiments that they've talked about but don't have they won't show pictures of i'm sure because they're they're grotesque creations but this is public information guys this is not something and this is in the modern day showing us that these things are possible and the extra biblical text the apocryphal text and scripture itself tells us that these practices are called nephilim practices this is this is the practices of of the offspring of the watchers that was taught to mankind and this is not good this is bad stuff and this was going on wherever we see nephilim clans this was one of the practices of the unrighteousness that was happening that leads to the corruption of mankind and so um yeah regardless of what you think of jasher there's plenty of other evidence 
and other extra biblical sources and, and the scriptures themselves that lead us to understand these ideas. So Jasher just kind of is kind of like I was mentioning earlier with uh, Second Baruch. Jasher just puts it to us in one sentence very plainly, so there's no way to misunderstand it. You know, um, so I think that that's important. For people understand and and take in, into account these ideas that our first our first line of hermeneutic that when we look at stuff in Enoch that talks about sirens, I don't interpret that through Greek mythology. I I look for that, something else in Scripture that lines up with that. Now, if I see a common theme or something declared in Scripture that the you know any writings or historical documentation or uh, hieroglyphs or anything to do outside of the scripture that parrots what I already found in scripture, then suddenly I, I feel like, well, maybe there's that's scripture defining accurately the history that is being documented by other nations. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. Scripture is always in first priority with us. Yeah. That's the way we look at this. So I want to encourage people to possibly take that same stance as well. And, you know, you're going to just, you're going to have an easier time finding your baseline for what is valid in scripture. Um, and that way you'll also keep yourself from ever in, interpreting scripture through, you know, any type of um, unreliable occultic source, right? For example, we've seen this done. People try to prove the Trinity, so they go to the Talmud. <laughs> no, don't do that. No, right? The Trinity is not, you know, in the way it's defined, they try to define it from the Talmud. So that, to me, that's the reverse of the hermeneutic I'm talking about. That's the wrong, that's the backwards way to do it. So we take scripture first, we find parallels within scripture of word usage, of contextual usage. And then if anything else lines up outside of that, that's fine. That's whatever. That means scripture is venerating an accurate version of history. But we don't use other occultic pagan sources to give us ideas that are not already in scripture. That would be bad. Okay. Um, All right. So do you want to read chapter uh, 20? Yeah, sure, man. Okay. Okay, and these are the names of the holy angels who watch. Now we get to talk about some of the, the good angels, Sean, and, and some of the things that they, they watch over, right? That's right. All yeah. right, verse 2. Uriel, one of the holy angels who is over the world and over Tartarus. Raphael, one of the holy angels who is over the spirits of men. Raguel, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance on the world of the luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels, to wit... He that is set over the best part of mankind and over chaos. Sirachael, one of the holy angels who is set over the spirits, who sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who is over paradise and the serpents and the cherubim. And Ramael, one of the holy angels whom God set over those who rise. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, we get the job titles of some of these leading angels. Um, and this is where, you know, some people would refer to these as kind of like archangels. These are just angels like in charge of other angels. You know, they're kind of given big, important positions of responsibility, you know, at, at their creation. Um, one of the ones that stands out to me right off the bat is, uh, you know, we already talked about Raguel, right, in verse 4, how he's over um, the, the world of the luminaries, and that's all the stars that we just saw and how they transgressed and were punished for it. So that means those... Seem that the stars themselves, the luminaries, are seeming to express and some sort of sentient behavior, right? They can think for themselves. They can choose to obey and disobey. And when they disobey, there's punishment involved. Raguel's over that, which is interesting. Michael, right? Um, I think it's interesting, and I don't exactly know what this means, but to say that he's over the best part of mankind. And that's fascinating to me 
Um, yeah, I think, I mean, if we want to look at, you know, what we know that he's over Israel, right? So you can, right. I mean, I don't think it's condescending to say that Israel, and I mean, anyone that's grafted into the, the, the concept right. of what Israel is, um, I don't think that's, you know, necessarily yeah, boasting incorrectly that Michael's over a, a nation of people who will obey Yahweh's instructions and want to be grafted into that nation as a whole of people. I agree. And I just hope that I can, I can add to what you're saying. So the viewer understands when we say Israel, we're not talking about the political, literal geographical landmass of today. That's right. The Bible speaks of Israel as people who believe and obey the commandments and faith. So this is not political nation of Israel today that we're talking about. We're talking about the family of God. It's generically idiomatically called Israel. And that's how we're grafted in. Whether you're born as a literal descendant, or you, you know, were, were were not born as a literal descendant, and you came to obey the terms of the covenant of the Almighty of Yahweh in faith and obedience, you are now grafted into this idea of the nation of Israel, right? And if, I hate to use this term because it's it's so fraught with semantics, but we're talking about the spiritual nation of Israel, not the literal geographical political nation of israel today yeah and when we say spiritual israel sean yeah. we're talking about spirit spiritual people who will get resurrected right they're going to take part of the covenant promises the ones that want to be in covenant now while they're in the flesh right where they're referred to as israel now and they become spiritual at the resurrection as they remain god's people of israel at the resurrection right that's right yeah we're like paul explains to us in first Corinthians 15 as the resurrection we're given spiritual bodies and not fleshly bodies anymore like we have currently. We're given new types of bodies. Um, and then Isaiah 26, 19 says the earth will give birth to departed spirits. And so that we, um, and this is, in my opinion, why Jesus is referring to in John 3 when he tells Nicodemus, you must be to see the kingdom of God, to get to the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and spirit. Whereas now we're born of the soil, right? The, the Our bodies now, blood, yeah. yeah, we're born of flesh and blood, um, but that, flesh came from the soil the ground the earth whereas in the future the spirit is going to raise us with some new type of body that's called a spiritual body and there's water associated with it which i yeah. think is fascinating yeah. so it's like a different type of chemistry of creation if you will yeah. um, which that's is why my it's opinion. going to be fascinating sean that when we get to chapter 22 of enoch yeah Sheol, right we know that contextually Sheol is surround it's, it's referred to as an aqueous womb right that's right yeah yeah, and we we depart through that womb when we're when the earth gives birth to the departed spirits, as you just um, referred to on the day of the Lord. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's the true baptism, man. <laughs> exactly what the baptism actually points to is the actual literal resurrected baptism. Um, Gabriel, one of the holy angels, this is verse seven. Gabriel, one of the holy angels, who is over paradise and the serpents of the cherubim. So this is fascinating. Okay, because now we've got a cherubim class of angels being called serpents. Yes. Yeah, lots That's of implications well. there, huh? Yeah. We got, um, uh, what do we got? We got the dragon, Satan, whom I'm theorizing from our readings in Enoch is the actual guy, Azazel. He's called the serpent in Revelation. So is this, yeah. is this Gabriel? I have a different theory over that, but yeah. Um What's your theory? Well, where he's referred to as the the serpent, the old, the ancient serpent of old, that devil, the dragon. Um, 
I believe that the serpent is just in reference to the, a literal snake that was created and placed in the garden. And um, one of the books of Adam and Eve actually mentions that, um, that the serpent, well, I should back up a bit, Jubilees mentions that all animals and creatures talk with one tongue and they were able, able to communicate with, with humans, right? Before the fall, after the fall, they were, they were unable to do that. So I believe that, you know, during um, the time when Adam and Eve were in paradise, the serpent kind that was there, they could talk just like all the other animals could talk. So it's not odd that a serpent could talk. And so the, one of the books of Adam and Eve mentions that the serpent was very crafty and, and cunning and one of the smarter um, creatures within the animal kingdom. And so Satan recognized that this serpent was crafty and cunning and, and stuff like that and decided to coax him into being his mouthpiece to tempt Eve into picking the, the forbidden fruit, right? So he uses through agency the serpent to do his bidding. It's another tactic of his where he, where he you know, puts something into the ear of, of, you know, a serpent and says, why don't you do this? We can maybe trick mankind into doing this. And you're going to be known as, I think one of the promises was that he would be recognized as, as being superior to the, to the human race. Right. So he's like, okay, this sounds like a, a neat idea. I might, I might do that. So it says that Satan um, became the mouthpiece essentially in the serpent. So he uses the serpent. And that's why I think that it's, referred to in, in revelation that he's the, the serpent of old just in terms of my association not literally being a serpent though that's my theory if that makes sense at all okay i think i'm i think i'm following um <clears throat> so you're saying the reference in revelation 20 verse 2 where it talks about the dragon slash the serpent of old slash who is the devil and satan okay yeah so you're, so you're thinking that he any reference to the serpent is just him using the agency of somebody else um, because it was the will of Satan being employed through the serpent. Yes. That's, that's my current theory. Um, okay. I don't, I don't see him otherwise being now of the serpent that, type. that particular verse in revelation 20, it also calls him the dragon. Um, and that's, I don't know. I'm just, isn't that a class of serpents dragons? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, and this is where we can start talking about like Leviathan and stuff like that. There's, there's wild theories out there, but um, I don't know. What do you think, man? You think that I don't Azazel know. or Satan is? Well, what I'm saying is in chapter 20 here in Enoch in verse seven, where it says, Gabriel, one of the holy angels who is over paradise and the serpents and the cherubim. Now, it, I, from what I can tell from this translation, it seems to be saying there's three different things here. Yeah. Paradise I think that the serpents is, is a potential reference to the seraphim. Because if the cherubim are there in paradise, right? That's, what, the, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that Gabriel is an angel? Well, that's acknowledged in this in the verse. Yep. Dover Paradise. We know what that is. That's the house of God. Okay. Yep. And within the house of God, there's angels that have functions and duties. And yep. as a part of that, there's a class called the cherubim. There's the ophanim, and there's the seraphim. We get this from Ezekiel and other places in Scripture. Yeah. But instead of mentioning the ophanim and the seraphim in this particular passage, it just says the serpents and the cherubim. Well, I, I mean, I'm just wondering what the serpents are in the paradise. And so, like you said, is it the seraphim? Is this just a translation? Um, I know we both have the sephir, but I don't have my sephir open right now. Yeah, the sephir does say over the serpents as well. Does it really? 
Yeah. I know that um, I think it's the Sefer that makes a claim that in Ezekiel, the word wheels is just a mistranslation for the Ophanim. And therefore, yeah. um, I, I, that definitely a different conversation for a different time. But I'm just trying to parcel out this concept of the setting. Gabriel is obviously an angel, and these are his responsibilities. Um, he's over paradise, which is an area, what we would call Zion, the house of God. Uh, which is its own area within the area of heaven, the land and the, re the seas and the mountains of heaven that we've been reading about from these previous chapters. And so within, it seems like, it, it, it may not be saying this. I could be wrong. I mean, but it, it seems to be saying like the cherubim and the serpents are inside paradise, or is he just, or is he just have multiple fa functions that he's over paradise? And, oh, by the way, outside of paradise, he's also over serpents and cherubim. Am I what? What do you think? How does that read to you? Yeah, I, I think that the cherubim are only ever associated um, in context with where Yahweh is located, right? Yeah, we see so, instructions for the Ark of the Covenant to make the cherubim cover the Ark with their wings. Yeah, so I would I would assume that Gabriel is over paradise, and then within the great within paradise itself are the serpents and the cherubim and the seraphim and all that. Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, of course, we're reading the English translation and doing our best yeah. to make sense of this particular word. It just stuck out to me. That's all. Yeah, but so you, you, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you earlier. Um, you think that possibly Azazel is is a serpent? Well, I'm saying that um, I don't think that I don't think that Azazel was his own authority. Like, for, let me say it like this. We're, we're getting these names of these angels that are over pretty large constructs, pretty large ideas and concepts. And it doesn't say anywhere in here that, you know, Azazel used to be over those things and now he's not because he rebelled. He, we just get the mention of Azazel in earlier chapters as being part of those who came down, part of the 200 that came down and rebelled. And I think that and we see that repeated further on in Enoch as well. Um, I think he was just a lower class angel. I don't think he was given a great ton of responsibility at the beginning. But like all the angels, they're told, you know, tons of information, knowledge way above what Adam and Eve were told at their creation. So they had a greater perspective and knowledge to begin with. And he just, he, he understood agency so well and pertaining to the law that he uses it to his advantage to get other people to do bad things. Um, and so I just think that, um, I don't know if he was under the authority of Gabriel, but I just think it's interesting because what we see in Revelation 20, verse 2, it mentions him as a dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. There's like four descriptions in one little verse. And like yeah. I've showed in previous episodes here, I, I was what I feel is a strong case for Azazel being Satan character that we see in Revelation 22, excuse me, Revelation 20. And I just think the mention here is suddenly it's thrown in serpents with the chair beam. And I, I, for whatever reason, you know, there's this, unfortunately this would lend into a much longer study that would parallel this idea of this idea that there's an actual class of angels that are serpents. Um, and in a sense of their creation, um, of which Azazel was a part of that class. If you could, if I could say it like that. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to explain this properly. Oh, you did. But, yeah. You did. Yeah. Uh, and without going on a huge rabbit trail with all these other scriptures, that's just how I was trying to surmise it real quick uh, for the viewer. But so, and I could be wrong. It could be not talking about that at all, but that's what pops to my mind. And so I'm just kind of keeping that in the back of my mind for now. 
Yeah. And all I have is, is like I said, just th that um, incident in one of the books of Adam and Eve, which I haven't fully vetted yet. I'm not sure, you know, where that lands on the spectrum of, you know, valid and, and worth testing and not. But it's just, I find it interesting that through agency, which Azazel's very good at, he coaxes the serpent kind and kind of like puffs up the serpent who was already a puffed up creature to begin with, apparently to go ahead and, and, and trick Adam and Eve into making an oath and eating something that they weren't supposed to eat. And so, yeah. And, and, and I think Ken, um, this, these three chapters we just went over as we, we discussed so much meat, so many things here in these three chapters that are, um, uh, great stuff to research. We found a ton of parallels with the modern canon of 66. And, you know, to me, this is just even more, more evidence that this particular book of Enoch should have, should still be in the canon of scriptures and should be a part of scripture. Right. And because there just gives us so much information. And, uh, and what, what I find is interesting as well is just for the, the natural inclination of people that are always curious about, you know, angels being referenced in the, modern American canon of 66 that we don't get any extra details about. Well, the book of Enoch gives us a ton of details about angels. Yes. So if you want to know and that not they, even, sorry, I was yeah, going to say in additional books too, to book the book of Enoch that have been removed also talking great deal about some of these angels. I mean, we just talked about one Sean in this last chapter here, verse eight, where it says Remael, one of the holy angels who God set over those who rise, he's referred to in second Baruch as being, the angel of the Lord that um, essentially destroyed the 185,000 Assyrians that are camped around Jerusalem, right? So we get by name, the angel of the Lord, who Enoch tells us existed as Ramael before any of these other books, right? So Enoch was shown who this guy was. So we don't get those details in the canon. It's just the angel of the Lord. And then because we only get that term, angel of the Lord, we make up these you know, we assume that, well, based off of our presuppositions and, and previous understanding of scripture, that this must be maybe a pre-incarnate Jesus or, you know, or Yahweh somehow. Like it's. Yeah. There's, unfortunately, there's a lot of speculation that happens yeah, because we haven't gotten any information on who these angels are that are helping God help mankind, yeah. you know, because they're his agents, his ministers that we're, we're told. And we see them interacting all the time and we don't get a lot of backstory on them. So people are naturally curious. And over time, and I, I know in my own life, I've heard pastors say, well, we shouldn't, you know, we, we don't want to encourage the worship of angels. Well, God giving us information about people helping us out is not worshiping angels, right? right? So again, this is just silly little arguments that are brought up to try to detract people away from studying these books that were removed from the canon because they think, they, they attribute these straw man arguments that, oh, well, just because you're interested in to know more detail about these angels, then you're going to worship them. Like yeah. it's the most ridiculous logical process of thought. Um, and like I said, it's just a straw man argument for them to try to support their fear. And I would suggest personally, the only reason a person may discourage anyone else away from reading these apocryphal books just to not even test them is because the only that the moment they tried to test them, they didn't understand what they were reading and therefore they became afraid. Yeah. And this is where I would say a person who has spent their time in the modern American canon of 66 and understands what they're reading and can understand the contextual themes everywhere. That's consistently repeated everywhere by all the prophets, right? These, these ideas that we're talking about of Sheol, the first resurrection, the return of the Messiah, 
you know, all these consistent ideas here that are constantly reinforced throughout the prophets. If they don't have a grasp on the Old Testament prophets and understand what they're talking about, they're going to they're going to feel fear when they read these apocryphal and extra biblical books because they don't understand the references. Yeah. So therefore they think it's somehow strange or pagan. Yeah. And, I, and I think that really all it shows is that person doesn't know their Bible very well. I don't want to discourage anyone. And if your pastor has been someone like that, that has told you, don't read those. Those are, those are the devil or something silly like that. Your pastor is a man just like anybody else. And he's fallible. And he had had a specific training, if you will, from whatever seminary he went to, if he went to seminary and, it doesn't mean that his word is the end all be all. I would encourage folks to study these books for yourselves just as much as you study the regular American Canon of 66. Make sure you know the foundation so then you can know what you're looking at when you're reading these apocryphal and extra biblical books. Yeah, amen, man. And uh, it's funny because these same people, these same pastors and seminarians will, you know, they'll say things like guardian angel. You have a guardian angel watching over you or whatever, right? They might, they might say that, but it's like, where did that term come from? That's not in our canonized 66 scriptures, right? That's right. Yeah. It's just, it's just another one of those weird terms that have manifested over centuries of, of tradition along with fallen angels, right? The concept is there and, you know, expanded upon in Enoch, but it's like, you know, just what we just read, Raphael, one of the holy angels, he watches. What does he watch over? Over the spirits of men. That's right. not venerating them. That's not saying we should not worship these things, even though angels were worshipped historically and probably still are today. That's a completely different argument, right? That's We just want to know what these ministering spirits are doing as recorded in these prophetic books. There's nothing wrong with knowing what these things are doing. Yeah, and I think it only helps us to understand their roles and, and yeah it's just it'll only do you better when you understand the full picture of the context that god's given us i mean even stuff like the book of jubilees in chapter two and it tells us the angels are created on day one you know and you're like oh well that's what they created because the, the rest of the canon doesn't tell us that at all exactly it, it never does it say worship these angels no in fact it emphatically over and over again says these angels serve the almighty and they only encourage men to follow the commandments of god because the angels themselves are following the commandments of god and what does Jesus define following the commandments of God as? It defines that as love, as loving God and walking with God, as following his commandments. Yeah. So we have angels that encourage us to do that in these extra biblical books because they're doing that. Yeah. And they're our brothers. They're yeah. going to be our brothers exactly. in the resurrection. I mean, we can, we can love them and we can learn all about them right now. And I, and I think that we should. Well, because according to Enoch, they have love for mankind. Yeah, exactly. Because they're full of the Father's ways. That's why they have love. <laughs> So, so, I mean, like, it's it's not about a false paradigm of worshiping some angel. That's yeah. that's a completely a straw man argument and just ri ridiculous. That's that's a fear-based statement. So I just encourage people to try to look past that, test these things for yourself, and thanks for joining us as we test them in front of you. Yeah. All right, guys. I uh, hope you come and join us next week. If you haven't already subscribed to the channel, make sure you do that. Click the bell for notifications when we post new videos. And... Um, and you can also find us on Facebook. We have Honor of Kings Facebook group where we discuss the extra biblical books and we test them against the canon as well. So that way you can have more in-depth interaction and conversation, not only with Ken and I, but also um, with other people in the group. And there's a, there's a good chat format for that because, unfortunately, the YouTube comment section is not the most efficient and best way for a chat a chat group, right? But we can get that in other social media platforms. So it's Honor of Kings 
is the name of the actual open group. It's a public group that you can find in the search on Facebook, and you're welcome to join us. And so, um, other than that, Ken, did you have anything else that you wanted to, to end with today? Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a good time, Sean, going over some really weighty material here. And uh, you guys, next episode is going to be worth tuning into because we're gonna we're gonna break into some pretty controversial places that Yahweh has created for the souls of men to to go to on a specific time. And uh, so I'm looking forward to having that discussion with you, Sean. And thank you guys for tuning in and uh, spread shalom over your life. And I hope that you're getting a lot out of these episodes. Yeah, Ken, next episode, <laughs> we're going to step on a lot of toes. Yes. A lot of, a lot of. Hopefully feeling. there are toes that are left to step on, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next episode, man, there's going to be a lot of pastors and teachers on YouTube that are not going to like us very much yeah. because uh, there's people that have written entire books about this concept that we're going to talk about next week. And they didn't consider Enoch in their research. And so they've yeah. come to some very errant conclusions as a result of that, uh, because that, that means they didn't understand what they were reading when we see all these mentions in scripture of what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah. So join us guys. It's going to be so much fun. And um, we just thank you for supporting us as you have already. Okay. And we'll see you next week.